we uh, start off the new year, we want to take a look at the book of 1 Corinthians. The title of the message for this new year service is Running with Purpose. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles with you, can I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be reading uh, verses 24 to 27. <clears throat> and if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's fine. You can just look up at the screen as well, and I'll be displaying that text for us to uh, follow along with. And it reads like this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Can we pray? Lord, as we open another year in celebration of um, the good things that you have done and the struggles that you have brought us through in 2011, we look with faith and hope and courage to face 2012, believing and trusting that your faithfulness will carry us once again. So as we meditate on these words of Paul, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see and to understand um, what you're trying to do in our lives so that we would cooperate with that work and submit to it and live in the fullness of your plan for us. So we just turn our hearts to you this day, the first day of a new year. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things I like to do at our church is at the start of every new year to begin with sort of a year in review video. And um, so we're going to do that at this time. So I'm going to ask the house lights to be turned down. And let's just start by looking briefly at 2011, if we can. And then we'll go on into what we want to talk about in the message today.
stay foolish. Thank you all very much. interesting in some years. Uh, it seems like you have to scrape hard to find enough interesting news to make these compilation videos, but 2011 was not that kind of year. It was, when you really reflect on it, jam-packed with amazing global events. We saw a 9.0 earthquake hit Japan with such devastation that it took over 15,000 lives and shifted the entire nation eight inches. <laughs> off its previous position, and even tilted the Earth's own axis. First in Tunisia, then spreading to Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and other nations, we saw the emergence of the massive protest movement that would eventually be labeled the Arab Spring. The full global impact of this movement has yet to be fully understood, but it's seismic in its influence to the world. After almost 10 years of hunting on May 2nd, we found the confirmed kill of Osama bin Laden. July 8th, the space shuttle Atlantis launched from Cape Canaveral for the very last time, ending an era in space exploration. It's interesting to think that our younger children now will grow up in a world in which they'll only know about the space shuttle missions from the history books that they read. They'll never be able to experience a space shuttle launch. After decades of civil war and the loss of almost two million lives, the southern Sudanese people have finally celebrated with a nation of their own. And what an amazing event that was in 2011. In October, we lost what many, who many consider to be one of the great innovators, one of the most influential people of our day, Steve Jobs, and every one of you who plays around with an iPhone or an iPad, sort of scratching our heads together, wondering who's going to fill those shoes and give us the next great thing that we all need to own. Finally, in December, after almost nine years, the war in Iraq has finally come to a close. The last troops on their way home. This is a glimpse of 2011 globally what it looked like for the world. But I want to ask you this day, how was 2011 for you? How was it for you as a year? Was it significant? Did you reach some major milestones? Or did 2011 just sort of go by like a blur? And it just blends into all of the years? You know, I want to say this. I think for most of us, it's very obvious how Christmas and Easter 
uh, are very central to the Christian calendar. And so we make a big fuss over them, and rightly so. We celebrate it with a lot of fanfare. But I think New Year's is just one of those holidays that we don't really know what to do with it. You know, as a Christian, it, it's about the Times Square ball dropping and Dick Clark and kissing someone when the clock turns midnight. And it's about drinking and partying and fireworks. Uh, but what I want to suggest to you today is that I believe the New Year celebration is a very important part of the Christian calendar. If you sort of look at the history of it and go back to the Jewish, <coughs> the Jewish calendar, to the Jews, they call it Rosh Hashanah, and it's the start of their new calendar year. And Rosh Hashanah begins a period of what are known as the High Holy Days, 10 days that begin with the new year and are capped by what is known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which to the Jews is the most sacred day of the entire year. And for the Jewish celebration, what it basically looks like is that the month leading up to the new year, what they do is they spend that month in introspection and prayer, meditation, looking at their life, where they're going, what they're doing. And it's in preparation for the high holy days in which there's a lot of meditation, prayer, and repentance, leading finally to that day of atonement. And what I want to offer to you this morning is that I think that ought to characterize the believer's experience as well of ushering in a new year. I think one of the problems is that we're all so busy. We're all running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to make it in life that we don't often pause. We don't often stop and reflect on the most important questions of our lives. Isn't that one of the paradoxical and sad truths about life is that some of the most important questions that you can ask of yourself are the ones that you are least likely to ask. And you know, when I sort of think about the early phases of life, it's so easy to measure time because there are these very discrete milestones that we're hitting. You know, when you're a primary school student, you're always trying to get to the next grade, aren't you? And then you have summer break, and that sort of puts something in your head. And then once you're getting near the end of primary school, you're thinking about graduating into becoming a middle school student. And then after middle school is high school. After high school is college. And in your college, you're thinking about grad school and your future career, your future spouse, future family. And it seems like pretty much you can go through all of life basically thinking about the next milestone that you're trying to reach. And then you become an adult. And suddenly the milestones are a lot fewer and a lot of journeying in between. And you're sort of left floundering a little, aren't you? And after a while, the years start blending into one another. And before you know it, decades go by. And you're sort of like, well, what's the next milestone here? Retirement? Death? <laughs> Middle age? Um, what really awaits us? And I think... In light of that aspect of adult living, I want to challenge us that New Year's can be a very critical time for us to just take a deep breath, pause, and reflect. And say, you know, in all of that busyness, in all of my meetings and family uh, events and, and all, of the, all of the things I'm doing for work and the promotions and the relocations, where is my life headed? What is this all about? Where, where is this all going to? Um, and that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this. I don't know what to call it, a sport or what. But it's called DB, 
drag racing. It's a really odd animal. In it, these men basically uh, trick up their cars with the loudest possible stereo systems. And they compete with one another head-to-head in a quote-unquote drag race in which they try to basically be the loudest uh, in, the, in the competition to win the prize. Uh, and these stereos are so insanely loud, uh, some of them exceeding 30,000 watts of power being pumped out, that you, you basically can't listen to music on them because the music sounds so distorted that you, you, in essence, can't even play music off of these sound systems. And I just want to show you a little clip here of the power of these units by showing you the, the base, what a base unit can do to a Yellow Pages phone book here. Let's just take a look at this. That's a speaker shredding a phone book by just the sound pressure alone. Now, as impressive as that was, that guy in this sport of DB dra dra uh, drag racing will be sort of considered a hobbyist, okay? The hardcore competitors actually have units so powerful that they remove all the windows in their cars and replace them with armor plating because the windows would shatter the second you turn it on. They basically open up every opening along the perimeter of the vehicle and pour concrete into it in order to reinforce it Otherwise, the sound pressure would literally shred the car into pieces. These cars exceed 30,000 pounds in weight and are so heavy that you cannot drive them. So they tow them on trailers to these events. The technical rule is they have to be drivable, but they only drive them like 10 feet into the place where you have to compete, and then it's considered you've driven it. Played in full blast, they're so loud that you cannot sit in the vehicle when they're playing. They say your nose will bleed, and it could blow out your eyeballs. <laughs> That's how, how much sound pressure is coming out of it. Now, what happens is that you, in essence, end up with a car that is so heavy that you cannot drive it. And with a stereo system so loud that you cannot listen to it. Now, when you think about that, is there really a winner here, okay? Does anyone really win? And I think anyone that observes the sport from an outside perspective can't help but laugh at it, wondering, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? And what I want to, why did I show you all this? Well, as absurd as DB drag racing is, I worry that there may be more parallels with it in our own lives than we really care to admit. I want to suggest to you that it's possible to think that you're living a life of success and you are so off course that you don't even realize it. And I think when we think about our own lives as Christians, we say it's all about God. It's all about his glory. It's all for him. It's all for him. 
And yet one of the things we know is that even as a Christian, we can start drifting, can't we? We start drifting a little by little. And before you know it, you kind of look back. And any sailor will tell you, it only takes a few degrees of drifting traveled on that course long enough to end up in an entirely different country on a boat, right? Just a few degrees off course taken long enough and you end up in an entirely different country. One of the things that I see as a pattern in my own life is when I look back at my early days of faith, when I was young in my faith, it was all about God. And there was passion in my heart. And the passion backed up that commitment. And it seemed like everything that I did, the desire at least, was for the glory of God. And then you get into adult living. And you work hard to get into a good school. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do. And you get into a good school and you pursue a good career. And you land that career because why? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. And then you, for some of us, after you get that career, you get married You start having children. Why? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise a family. And now you find yourself chauffeuring your children to every extracurricular activity, pushing them to excel academically, trying to get them into a good college. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do as a good parent. And what you find is that you're just perpetuating the cycle of meaning if there is meaning in these things. And listen. I'm not trying to say here this morning that trying to get into a good school, have a good career, raising a family is somehow evil. I am not saying that. But what I am trying to say is even these good things, in pursuit of them, when they distract us from the ultimate things, the most essential things of life, can ultimately thwart what God is trying to do. And I just want to ask you that this morning, where is your life headed? Maybe you're hitting all the milestones that society expects of you. Maybe you've, you've reached these points of success that help you to measure your progress in your life. But as we celebrate this new year and get ready for 2012, can I just ask you to think about that for your own life? Honestly, where are you headed right now? What is the trajectory of your life? What is this all leading up to? Because what Paul seems to be suggesting here in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27, is that it is possible, even as a Christian, to find yourself claiming to be running the race and yet running aimlessly, claiming to be fighting the fight and yet beating the air like a wild person, never making contact with the enemy. I think we need to give pause and think about that. In other words, what I'm asking you is this. Are you building a car that you cannot drive? Building a stereo system that you cannot listen to? And society has convinced you that somehow you've won. How do you define winning? How do you define success? 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is that I've grown up in the church ever since as far back as I can remember, and I can say this honestly, I hardly remember any sermons that ever focused on this theme of rewards and 
you know, I don't know, maybe you can think back to your own history in the church. How many sermons have you heard where the appeal was made to Christians about the rewards that await us for those who live a life faithfully before God? Now, I want to say that I think one of the reasons why we shy away from this theme in Scripture, which is found everywhere, is that it somehow sounds a little baser than what we would consider to be the purer motives, like love for God and a desire to live for Him. That somehow, by thinking about being motivated for a reward in heaven seems too self-centered, too selfish. But I want to argue that the Bible is filled with this motivation for believers. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 31 to 33, it goes on, and Jesus says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. What I see in this message of rewards, I think, sheds some light on this whole idea of living out of self-interest. And there is undeniably a stream of teaching in the Bible that talks about denying of oneself, of having a sacrificial servant heart in which we put the needs of others before our own. But I also want to argue that we need to be careful about how we understand this concept of self-interest particularly in the light of what the Bible teaches. And I want to say that there's this one sense, though, in which we can never fully divorce ourselves from this notion of self-interest. In fact, if you think about just a few areas of life, I hope it'll make sense to you. Just consider grooming and hygiene, you know? We can see that you can become a vain person based on your physical appearance and excessively worry about your hair and how your face looks and about sculpting your, your, your killer body and all of these things. But think about it on the other end of the spectrum. If you have utter disregard for those things, is that a healthy thing, a good thing? Then you don't ever wash your hair. You never bathe. You walk around like a homeless person. Is that to the glory of God? No, I mean, obviously, there's enough self-interest there that allows you to maintain a degree of hygiene and maintain a certain degree of taking care of yourself. Think about gluttony. When we become consumed by our lust for food, it can turn into gluttony, and we become obsessed with food. You know, you become a, a foodie, and you're always watching the Food Network, and you're always checking out the next great restaurant that's attracting a lot of attention on Yelp, and so on and so on. But without some self-interest, you would starve to death, wouldn't you? If you had utter disregard for yourself in relation to food, then you would never eat. But there's enough sense of self-preservation that you feed yourself. And we can go down the list like this, and in essence say, it's hard to imagine a life utterly divorced from any sense of self-interest. Without any self-interest, would I even desire God at all? And what I want to say to you is this. What the Bible seems to be saying is, is this. In 
it is not utterly deconstructing and destroying the idea of self-interest, but what it's saying is in your self-interest, combine that self-interest with faith, with faith. In your desire to look after yourself, live for the right things. And that's why he says, listen, if you're going to chase after treasures, store your treasures in heaven for the kingdom of God and live for that kingdom. You know, Randy Alcorn puts it like this. He says, if you were alive during the Civil War days, at the waning final days of the Civil War, and it became very clear that the South was losing, and say that you were a very wealthy Southern businessman, the problem, though, is that all of your wealth lies in your possession of Confederate currency. If you really believed and understood that the war was coming to the close and the union was going to win, what would you do? If you were wise and if you had faith in that outcome, you would do everything in your power to convert as much of your Confederate money into union dollars as fast as you can. Why? Because you know that in a very little while, all of your imagined wealth suddenly goes up in smoke. Once the North wins, all of your money means nothing. It's not even worth the paper that it's written on. And I think that's basically one of the appeals that is being made here. First John chapter 2, verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Meaning that there are ways in which you can invest your life in the temporary, in the things that are one day going to pass away. But the call of Scripture is invest your treasures in the things that are going to last. One of the things that I want to ask you this morning as we're talking about this idea of looking at the finish line, thinking about where the end of our life is headed, my worry is, is this. There are some of us in this room today that are going to reach that finish line, the end of our lives, sitting on a pile of Confederate dollars. And what you're going to find is that all of those things that you treasured so much and worked so hard for are going to go up in smoke and have no eternal value. And the question that is being asked of you this morning, are you running with purpose? Are you living for the things that really matter? Running with purpose not only means looking at the finish line and where we're headed, but there's another aspect of it that's brought out in 1 Corinthians 9. And it's found in verse 27 when it says this. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul paints for us the picture of an athlete that undergoes an extraordinary level of discipline in order to prepare himself and train himself for the race, for the fight that lies before him. And I think this is the call to Christians, is that in this pursuit of running with purpose, it also calls us to shed the things that can so easily encumber us and entangle us. And as I said earlier, the problem is, is this, that even the good things of life, can entangle us if they hinder us from pursuing that which is ultimate, that which is eternal. 
So part of our reflection for the new year is not only which direction am I headed in, but what are the things that are hindering me from running this race with all of my heart? And so what I want to offer to you this morning is these two questions that I'm going to give us some time to meditate on this morning. What I hope would come out of this coming week for many of us is a time of reflection, personal prayer. I pray that somehow in the midst of our busy life that you would take pause and just spend some time asking yourself about these most essential things. Where is my life headed right now? The first question is this. What is my trajectory? What is my trajectory? You may be expending all kinds of energy. You may be busy, busy, busy. But the question is, where are you running to? Where are you running for? Or we could ask it this way. Where is your heart this day? Where are you storing up your treasures? Is your life headed in the right direction in the eyes of God? What does it mean for you to feel that you've been a success? Now listen, I'm not saying that we should all abandon our lives and go into a monastery living and just spend endless hours for the rest of our lives in prayer meetings. But I'm asking you, when you're talking about your parenting, what are the ultimate goals? Is it to get your kids into an Ivy League school and then you feel as a parent you've been successful? Or does that come under the lordship of Christ? And when we're talking about a trajectory, are you seeing that your primary goal as a parent is to steward your children and disciple them to the place where they come to know the Lord? There's nothing wrong with having a successful career. But what is the ultimate end of that career? Did God not give you that job so that out of that wealth you could give to the kingdom of God? and You can witness to your coworkers and on and on. This is the type of thinking process that I think needs to go on when we're talking about a trajectory. What are the ultimate ends to which I am engaging in these things in my life? What is the purpose of it all? Am I running with purpose? Do I see that finish line? Or am I running aimlessly in circles? Am I fighting and landing punches that count? Or am I just flailing my arms wildly, aimlessly, purposely, purposelessly? And then the second question that I want you to meditate on this morning and this week is this. What is entangling you? What is keeping you from running this race with the kind of single-minded passion fervor and focus that God desires of all his followers. It's scary, isn't it? How easily these little hobbies and trivial pursuits become addictions and obsessions. How easily we surrender ourselves to bondage, to all kinds of things. And again, they may not be horrible things, you know? You might not be doing these terrible criminal behaviors. But what are the things that have entangled you? Maybe in a moment of honesty, you can really examine your life and you can say to God, God, I know there's nothing in the Bible that forbids me from doing these things. But when I really look long and hard and honestly at my life, I have to say that these things are possessing me in a way that is not healthy. And when I pour myself so deeply into this, I find that I have nothing left to give to you. Because I poured all my passion into these things. These things are entangling me and keeping me from running the race as you desire. Let me close 
with a passage in Hebrews that I think echoes these two themes beautifully. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Yes, there is the promise of reward, and we fix our eyes on the hope of receiving something from the Lord. But as the writer of Hebrews suggests, ultimately, we fix our gaze on Christ himself. And the only reason I can even preach this message to you this morning to run this race with purpose is because Christ has already run the race for us. And even as Bobby shared in the opening praise, you know, sometimes I think we get a little jaded. We get a little sick and tired of all of these uh, New Year's resolutions. And we're thinking, what's the point? Because by February, it just gets me depressed because, you know, whatever. <laughs> I lost five pounds and gained another 10. Um, but there's something about staying in the fight, about still running, and ultimately keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, who will get us to the finish line. And you're going to take some step back, steps back. You're going to fall down. You're going to trip up. But as the writer of Hebrews says, Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Set your trajectory on him and him alone. And you will keep a true course to that final destination. And the reason why you will cross that finish line in the company of the witness of all the saints that have gone on before you is because Christ is the one who is sustaining you every step of the way. Can we just bow our heads right now? And I'm going to invite the Harvest Worship Team to come back up here. Before we close in some responsive singing, I want to give you a little opportunity this morning to spend some time in introspection and in reflection and examination of your life. And I want to ask you that question once again. How was 2011 for you? If you're like me, falling deeper and deeper into adult living, one of the things that you do discover is, boy, those milestones just aren't there anymore. And your life just starts to all just blend away into one amorphous, endless timeline. And you're raising your kids, you're getting the promotions at work, you're thinking about the next upgrade of your home or your kitchen, next, maybe 2012, is gonna be the year you're gonna redo your bathroom. I don't know. These things are not bad things in and of themselves. But the danger is sometimes this becomes the total substance of our life. Working for the next promotion. Working for our kids' future success. What Paul says is, you know, it's possible to claim that you're running the race. Yet what you find is that you're running aimlessly. It's possible to claim that you're fighting the good fight. And all you're doing is flailing your arms like a wild person hitting nothing making no impact for the kingdom of God like I said a few degrees off course 
travel long enough can lead you to an entirely different nation, an entirely different destination. So I'm going to give you about five minutes right now before we even sing to spend some time in reflection and prayer. And I want you to think about those two questions. What is the trajectory of my life? Not your stated trajectory, not the trajectory that you claim to be on, but what is the true trajectory of the boat that you're sailing right now? And you can find that at the end of your life, that you're sitting on a pile of Confederate money that's utterly worthless. Or are you storing for yourself treasures in heaven that where neither moth nor rust nor thief can lay a hand on? And then again, uh, secondly, what is entangling you? Are there some things that you have allowed entrance and access into your heart that are sapping the life out of you? And the reason why you really refuse to deal decisively with them is because in a legalistic perspective, there's nothing sinful about it, you know? I mean, no one can really point a finger and say, how dare you? But in your heart of hearts, you know that your heart has wandered and you've allowed some things to take control of your heart that is not healthy. And sometimes the greatest enemy of the eternal are even the good things in our life. And lastly, in light of all of this, can we just turn our eyes to Christ and say, God, I feel like every new year I just get depressed because I do look at my life and I feel like there's just so little progress. I have so little to speak for for my life. But the message of the cross is that all of us can live a life of meaning. Because Christ lived a life none of us could live. And even if you make a commitment this day and find that you failed the very next week, I still want to challenge you to make that commitment before the Lord. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. For every time you stumble, every time you trip, Christ will help you back up. And he's waiting for you at the finish line, encouraging you, saying, finish the race. Finish the race. Just keep your eyes fixed on me. Run to me. Run to me. And your life will have meaning. Will you just spend about five minutes right now and just come before the Lord and say, Lord, shine a light into my heart, into my life, and give me understanding of where I'm going and what I am before you. Just pray.